Well, good morning, and uh, thank you very much for your, your welcome, warm welcome this morning. Thank you very much for your, for your prayers as, as well, Lee, just now. Um, just to introduce myself a little bit, uh, although I'm from Letchworth at the moment, from Grange Baptist Church, more of that in, in a moment. Um, I'm actually a fairly local lad. I was brought up in, in, in Silso as a child just down the road, and uh, uh, I'm actually a bit of an armchair Luton fan as well, so I think I'm in good company, good company here. Happy days at the moment. Um, well, from Grange Baptist Church, I say greetings, and uh, uh, we, we have a, a long connection. It was lovely to have your youth group with us just a few weeks ago for, for their weekend away. I think I recognise you from that, Lee, don't I? Yes, and a, f- and a few others. Um, and uh, we do really value the link with, with Flitic, uh, obviously with Mark and Louise, especially known to so many of you. We've been very grateful um, for so much help and support um, especially uh, whilst Mark has been ill last year and then a sabbatical following that. Uh, lots of help from, from you all, from, from Bob, in so many ways, um, in practical ways. Um, yeah, just uh, uh, do pray for us as a church, if, if you remember in your own prayers. We've, we've had uh, encouragements from one or two new folk joining us lately, and also we've heard of a couple of girls from the youth group who've made a commitment to Christ, which we praise the Lord for. Um, pray for them to go on with him. Uh, and uh, we have our holiday club coming up this week. It's got a new name. We had a break from it last year and a bit of a new format. So we're very much looking forward to that. So do pray for us uh, that there'd be faithful teaching of the gospel and for young lives to be changed through that. Well... I don't know uh, how many of you are cricket lovers. I know cricket's a little bit like Marmite. You either love it or you hate it, but uh, you, you might be aware there's a test match series going on at the moment. The Ashes, England uh, against Australia. And uh, there are some very quick bowlers on both teams. There's uh, Hazelwood and Cummings for Australia, and uh, there's Jofra Archer bowling for England at something in the 90 miles per hour uh, region from just uh, 22 yards away at some very brave batsmen. Um, the Australian captain, Steve Smith, who has been the bane of England so far in the series, um, was actually struck a couple of times yesterday and, and had to go off for, for treatment uh, as, as Archer um, bowled to him. And, and it occurred to me what a lonely job that can seem, going out there as a, as a batsman and having to, to stand your ground. Um, feels very lonely, but you're part of a team, and uh, where many of us would just run a mile as soon as we saw one of these guys uh, charging in to bowl at that sort of pace with a, with a very hard ball, um, these, these men stand there. Uh, they stand their ground. They stand firm. They face the bowling. They're going to have to be there for a long time, as long as they can anyway, and ball by ball, just uh, concentrating on what's going on. Um, maybe scoring a run here, a run there slowly, maybe it may get a little bit quicker, but they're doing it with a purpose. There's an end in sight. Um, they want to win the game. They're, they're, they're playing for the team. And uh, the Christian life can be a little bit like that. And what we're looking at this morning, which Sandra read for us earlier in Philippians, is about standing firm, standing firm in the Lord. So would you, if you, if you haven't got it open, turn to that chapter, Philippians chapter 4, and it's page 1180 that Sandra read for us earlier on, and we're going to be looking through that 
this morning. Well, some of our translations of this, including my older um, New International Version, place the first verse that we read, chapter 4, verse 1, as a sort of conclusion to chapter 3. And they put a new heading from chapter 4, verse 2 onwards. Well, we always need to remember when we come to our Bibles, don't we, that the the headings uh, are not part of what was originally written. Uh, Neither are the chapter and verse divisions, actually. But it is more helpful to see chapter 4, verse 1, as we've read it, flowing on into verse 2, and and, and not to see uh, verse 2 as being something new. Let me just read those first few verses again. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, the first verse anyway, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And the therefore at the beginning, you're probably very familiar with this, many of you, uh, is looking back to the reason for Paul's command to the Christians at Philippi to stand firm. There's the great encouragement which you've been here in previous weeks, you'll have seen of of already being citizens of heaven, perhaps you saw that last week, of the certain hope that we have in Christ, the certain expectation of his return. But meanwhile, throughout this letter, there's been the reality that we're in a struggle as Christians. That word's used back in chapter 1. There are the dangers, the, the temptations of selfish ambition, of putting self before others, of complaining, of arguing, these These ideas have come up of valuing our own culture and upbringing above Jesus. The dangers of being being led astray, being led away from complete dependence on Jesus Christ. There's the the hostility of the society around us. Enemies of the cross of Christ, Paul described them, probably in what you read last week. And there are the temptations from within that hostile society, a crooked and depraved generation, Paul calls it, same today. There's a struggle. There is a battle. And so not for the first time, Paul commands the Philippian church, and he commands us in this sort of military phrase, to stand firm, to hold our position. But that's the therefore, looking back to what's been. But we've got this, this phrase towards the end of the verse, in this way. Well, thus, as some versions put it. The in this way, the thus, is looking ahead, saying how you are to stand firm. And the next words are key. Not trying to drum up some sort of self-confidence, as if in the words of a poem that's been quite popular in recent years, Invictus, um, you may have come across this, the poet writes of being the master of my fate and the the captain of my soul. That's not the way. The Christians to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. In dependence on Jesus, who is Paul's own total purpose and focus, as you'll have seen in, in previous weeks. And these words, in the Lord, kind of tie our passage together. Verse 2, if you look at that, you'll see, be of the same mind, in the Lord. Coming back to that more in a moment. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. And similarly later on, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Again, that is in the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. 
So four things this morning to help us stand firm in the Lord. First of all, that we need to agree in the Lord, verses 2 and 3. Let me read those again. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, to agree in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Well, some of the things that we'll see later have we have to pay attention to as individual Christians, individual soldiers of Christ. But here's a reminder that we're part of a community working together and that that work that we're involved in, the work of the gospel, is seriously compromised when there is division and discord, when people do not agree in the Lord. And just to to set the scene, there's something of a picture uh, in verses 1 and 3, reading between the lines a little, of what church should be like, characterized by a deep love for one another, joy in each other. Let me read verse 1 again. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, says Paul, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. When he says dear friends, that, that word really is the, it's the agape word, that the second time he's used it in, in the in the verse, my beloved, those whom I love. That's what he's saying there. We know that uh, there's a particular situation with Paul. He's got a lot invested in that church. He refers to them as, uh, as his crown in a way that perhaps doesn't apply to us. But, but feel that love, that joy that he takes in his fellow Christians, even though he's not present with them. Uh, and also, there is uh, the fact of being working together for the gospel, isn't there? In Verse 3, contending together in the cause of the gospel. That's part of what church is and should be, isn't it? Um, People whose names are written in the book of life. We share that certainty together of being in heaven, citizens of heaven. And that's the context that makes it so vital to to deal with disagreements and, and rifts within the church. Christians can't stand firm as a group where there is disunity. And all churches get affected by this from time to time. All churches do. As Christians, we are saved sinners, but we are still sinners. We're still a work in progress. There was so much good about the church at Philippi that you will already have seen. But that church wasn't exempt from disagreement, disunity. And the instance that we've got here between these two women, Euodia and and Syntyche, was clearly very serious. Must have been long-standing for Paul, weeks away, hundreds of miles away in prison, to have heard about this and to feel it necessary to include this in a letter that itself was going to take a long time to, to reach the church. For him to call out these individuals by name. People dear to him, who've been engaged with him in the work of the gospel in evangelistic work, reaching out. Well, I don't know, um, and I'm glad I don't know, if this, is a, if this is a fellowship where everybody sits in the same chair every week. Um, maybe you don't, maybe some of you do, some of you don't. 
Um, but I just imagine the scene at Philippi. I know their church wouldn't have looked like this. Um, but Euodia, perhaps at the back on the right-hand side, as this letter from Paul comes in, and Syntyche over on this side, right at the front, because they, they can't stand the sight of each other. They won't go near each other. And um, the true yoke fellow, the true companion, I, I think of this as a personal name, actually. It could be a personal name. The footnote here doesn't suggest this, but it might well be the name of a, of a person called Syzygus. Um, the other names are mentioned there, aren't there? Euodia, Syntyche, Clement. I think this might be a particular person, a name as well. He's there somewhere in the midst, just possible. He's even the person who's received the letter and is reading it out loud to this church. They didn't all have their own copy like we do, did they? This letter would arrive. They'd all gather around a letter from Paul. And here they are, listening. And can you imagine that first verse 1 that I've just read out, Paul speaking of his love his joy in them, everybody hanging on Paul's every word. Uh, And then we get to verse 2. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche. And they know what's coming, don't they? And everybody knows what's coming. And Syzygus hears his name mentioned, and everyone turns around and looks. And Euodia and Syntyche turn bright red, and uh, I picture it as Euodia, Syntyche, Syzygis off to the vestry straight away to get this sorted out. I don't know. I don't know. That's just a fanciful idea of how it happened. But they get the picture. It's vital for this conflict, this disagreement to be resolved. Because unresolved conflict remains just that, unresolved It affects others beyond those involved directly. People take sides sometimes. The witness of the church is affected. It undermines young Christians when when they see it. And Paul doesn't mention the nature of this falling out. Was it about the music? Was it about who's in charge of an area of church service? Was it something about doctrine? We don't know. It's the fact that there is the rift there that matters to Paul. And he doesn't take sides, does he? He treats both of them equally. I entreat, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche. They're not to be just stuffed away in a corner to to sort it out, not coming out until they've finished. Because helping each other in these things is part of being church, isn't it? It's part of what it means to to love. And so Syzygus is called in as well. Paul tells Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind, not in some abstract way, not to just generally agree about something that they're interested in or about the way they see this, that or the other, but to agree in the Lord, in the Lord. Each remembering what they have in common in relation to Jesus, that each of them, both of them is a sinner, saved by grace. Each is called to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, as they would have heard read out from what we call chapter 2. Jesus put others before himself, didn't he? He didn't seek strife. Jesus made himself nothing and became obedient to death on a cross. We read that in chapter 2. That's what they're to recall, to agree in Christ, in the Lord, and each to recall that their names are written in the book of life. They're both citizens of heaven. There are no divisions. There's no disharmony in heaven. And as the church, we're called to live out now what we will be living out forever in heaven. The church is meant to be a little picture of that. 
These are the things there to look to. These are the starting points for, for healing the rift. Well, again, I don't know people here this morning. It's been lovely to chat to a few. And that perhaps makes it easier for me to ask, do you need to take steps or to take the first step towards making peace, towards healing a, a, a rift, a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ? Maybe it's only just beginning. There's time to nip it in the bud. Or, or are you someone who's in a position to help bring together two who've fallen out, who've not spoken to each other for a while? Difficult though it may be, un-English, although we may find it, we can't take the line that, that it's none of our business. Part of being church is that we're here to help each other, including in this way. We might uh, not be that actual person, but we might be able to think of somebody who could be the person to help. And at least we can pray. And before we leave this, these first three verses, can we just see something of the challenge in the strength of feeling that Paul has for his fellow Christians, including these women, which moves him to, to plead with them, these dear friends, these beloved. Is that how we feel about our brothers and sisters? Do we, do we feel that love, that deep love, that joy in each other that, that Paul feels? That's, that's an example and a, and a challenge to me. We'll see later on how we can look to Paul as an example. And I know I need to, to pray to have this deeply felt Christ-like love and joy for and in my brothers and sisters in the church. Perhaps you feel that need too. So, agree in the Lord in order to stand firm. That's a communal thing. That's a relational thing. But a spiritually healthy church, one which is standing firm in the Lord, depends on individual Christians who are spiritually healthy, who are standing firm. And the other things we're going to look at are about uh, our personal lives. So secondly, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice and let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Well, you've already seen, I'm sure, that this letter to the Philippians is a letter full of joy. And joy not always in what looked like happy or good circumstances. Paul's writing from prison, isn't he, in chains. Yet he knows joy. He encourages the Philippians to, to see joy in the struggle. And it's the same here. And I have to say, although I'm, uh, I'm happy and I think we should be with the way these first few verses are arranged, not so much with this final exhortations thing that we've got and I'm glad Sandra I don't think read that out when you read it um, we don't need that there it's, it's splitting verse 4 off from, from verse 3 in a way that's not really helpful because this isn't disconnected from what we've just read it follows on Paul's already given this very command rejoice in the Lord back in chapter 3 verse 1 why does he give it again here and with an always added on at least partly I'm sure because he's still addressing this situation of division between Euodia and Syntyche and acknowledging the effect that this will have had on others in the church seems to take away joy, doesn't it? He wants to give all the help he can, even while he's in chains hundreds of miles away. He wants to give all the help he can to the church, including Euodia and Syntyche, in the midst of this. And even in this situation, which causes Paul himself so much sadness, there is reason to rejoice. It's not in some sort of cheer up, worse things happen at sea kind of way, but to rejoice in the Lord. 
in order to stand firm in the Lord. And he repeats it because it's so important. It's a command. It doesn't mean going around with a, with a sickly grin on your face all the time, but it means to remember all that we have in the Lord, in Jesus, even when there are unsettling and upsetting things going on. I wonder if you remember the Ethiopian eunuch back in Acts chapter 8, reading, uh, reading Isaiah in his, in his Bible as he's on his way back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem. And Philip meets him on the way, doesn't he? And he explains what he's reading to him. He tells him this is all about Jesus. And this Ethiopian official gets it. He understands it. There and then he puts his faith in Jesus. And what does he do then? He went on his way. Do you remember this? He went on his way rejoicing. That's the response that we have, isn't it, when we become a Christian that's our response to the, to the truth of, of the gospel of Jesus and all that he's done for us. Those truths of the gospel that, that led us to rejoice then never change. So why should our response ever change? Rejoice in the Lord. That doesn't make it easy. I was preaching a few months back at our church on a passage in, in the first letter to the Thessalonians. And there Paul says something similar. Be joyful always, he says. And I don't think I did it justice at the time because a brother came up afterwards who had a lot of troubles in his own life at the time, still does. And he said, sometime or other, I ought to say and explain just how we can be joyful always, just how we can give thanks in all circumstances. And as it happened, that, that was two days after my own mother's funeral and I knew that he had a point from my own experience there. We don't have to be happy at the circumstances, but in the Lord there is always reason to rejoice. And we need to remind ourselves of this every day. That's the other meaning of always, isn't it? Rejoicing always, not just in all circumstances, but at all times, daily, every day. It may actually be that sometimes we have the opposite danger of, of not rejoicing in the Lord when things are going smoothly in our lives in order to stand firm in the Lord what do we have to rejoice in we have forgiveness don't we we have new life we have eternal life we have heaven assured we have the great creator God as our loving father who cares for us his spirit living in us Jesus with us if you like to help us to comfort us we have a new family, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have a purpose in life, good works prepared in advance for us to do. These are the things that cause us to rejoice in the Lord always, aren't they? They give us perspective. They should do when things are hard or dispiriting. And perhaps these would give you Odia and Syntyche some perspective too and help them to be reconciled. So as you rejoice, says Paul, let your gentleness be evident to all. That's part of the fruit that the Spirit grows in us as Christians, isn't it? And Paul takes it as read that all have a measure of gentleness. And in a situation of disharmony, what an important quality that is, isn't it? To be gentle, not to be letting emotions get heightened. A gentle spirit, a gentle answer turns away wrath. 
And the Lord is near, says Paul. He's near to give us joy, to give joy to troubled hearts. He's near to help his people as they seek to resolve their differences. So agree in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, and then pray in the Lord. Um, I don't know if there's anyone here who favours the King James, the authorised version. Um, I rather like what that says uh, at the beginning of verse 6. I guess most of you are following the NIV today. Um, it says, be careful for nothing. It's one of those verses that um, um, I, I sometimes debate with, with uh, friends who like the, 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 the authorised version because that word careful sounds like we're being told to be slapdash, doesn't it? Be careful for nothing. Well, what does that mean? Um, well, if you do favour that version, you need to do a little bit of kind of mental translation over the 400 years since it's been written because being careful back then meant being full of care. That's the other meaning of care, isn't it? Of worry, of anxiety. And so even the NIV is saying, do not be anxious about anything. What does Paul mean when he says, do not be anxious? I mean, after all, if you look back to chapter 2, verse 28, you can see that Paul himself had been anxious about his friend Epaphroditus. He speaks about, so that I may have less anxiety. Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus had been ill. Uh, and aren't the situations where we're right to be worried or, or anxious? If we have a, a, a sick child, a sick son or daughter who needs to see the doctor, we're, we're, we're worried, we're anxious. If we're not, we're not going to take them to, to see the doctor and get them help. If we weren't worried, we'd, we'd miss out on some necessary action. So what does, what does Paul mean here? We really need to read the whole verse as one. So the two commands in this verse, in verse 6, go hand in glove. Do not be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. What we're to avoid is an anxiety that doesn't lead us to prayer. We're to depend on God, and that's expressed in prayer. Anxiety without prayer, seems to focus on, on me somehow, doesn't it? As though there's this situation, it's really worrying, but I ought to be able to, to sort it out. But I can't, and so the anxiety grows. I can't get rid of it. The root meaning of this word for anxiety is actually distraction. It's being pulled apart. And that's what it's like when we're anxious, isn't it? We can't, we can't concentrate on things we should. We're being pulled in, in different directions. That's not standing firm. That's not going to help us to, to stand firm. To stand firm in the Lord means that when we start feeling anxious, we turn to him in prayer. That's what the Philippians are to do, even in this, this difficult situation that faces them, the Euodia Syntyche situation. Well, there are some great Christian prayers, and I'm sure there are in this fellowship and there are many of us who have, frankly, a very meagre prayer life. I, I hear this continually and I read it in books and hear it from pastors. Surveys are done of the amount of time a typical Christian spends in prayer. And I have, to, I have to point this at myself as well as at anybody else. When did you last pray at length about something that made you anxious? I don't want to be insensitive here. I know there are genuine situations where professional help's what's needed. In, in situations of anxiety, but I suspect many of us simply need to pray more, to depend on the Lord more.
nothing new. 150 or so years ago, a man called Joseph Scriven wrote a hymn with these words, many of you will know. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And, and here's an example to think about. Jesus himself, on the Mount of Olives, shortly before he went to, to his trial and, and execution on the cross, he knew he was going there. The word Luke uses for how he felt is, is anguish, actually, not anxiety, but anguish. Luke chapter 22. Being in anguish, we read, what did Jesus do? He prayed more earnestly. That was Jesus. He needed to do that. What about us? As we pray, thankfully, reminding ourselves of how much God has done for us, how much he's given us, there's a great promise, isn't there, in verse 7? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the experience of so many Christians over the years. I hope it's, it's your experience too when we pray, when we depend on the Lord. However God answers our prayers, and he might not change the circumstances we're in, but he changes our heart, he changes our mind within those circumstances. That experience of a real inner peace that comes from depending on the Lord in prayer. It's a promise not of filling our hearts and minds, but of guarding them, protecting us from being distracted by anxiety, from being pulled away, protecting us from the dangers of trying to rely on ourselves so that we can stand firm in the Lord. And I, I, I do just want to urge a note of caution here. Again, I don't know you. I don't know whether if you've come here this morning, you know that you're not yet a Christian. Perhaps you're looking into Christian things. Perhaps you've come with a friend. Then, then may I say that you can't sort of flip this thing over and say that a general feeling of well-being or peacefulness or sort of woolly warmth is is a sign that things are right between you and God right now. It's not possible to flip this over. I've been spending some time over recent weeks with uh, a man, John, who comes to some of our services and other events. We're looking at Mark's gospel together. Um, and sometimes in the course of, of the chat that we have, he's in a bit of a state. Fallouts with friends, a relationship that's going through a rocky phase. But there have also been times when he said he feels a real sense of, of peace maybe through something he's heard in church or things are going better in his life. But I have to say to him, whatever that feeling, it's not evidence of being right with God because he's not there yet and he does know that. At the moment, what he most needs is peace with God because if you're not a Christian at the moment, you're, you're at enmity with God. That peace with God comes from his initiative through accepting that it's only Jesus' death on the cross to pay for your rebellion against God, to take the punishment that should have been yours. It's only through that you can have peace with God and then come to experience that real deep inner peace in your heart as you rely on him in prayer. And finally, set your thoughts on the Lord. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, says Paul, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God, the God of peace, promise of both being with us. The peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. And there's something for us to do too, to guard our hearts and minds. Our thought life matters. Our minds matter. What we think about shapes what we become. If you think about your career all the time, then you'll pursue that above all else. If you think about yourself all the time, then you will act selfishly. Depending on what you watch on on the internet or, or TV, it will shape the way that you view people and the way that you think about the world. And this will shape your behavior. Some people say it's your actions that that matter. It doesn't matter what's going on in your mind. But actually there's an inseparable link between the two, between what we think and how we live. We can't focus our minds on what's wrong and live out what is right. If we allow our minds to be filled with the wrong things, then it will come out in our words and in our actions and it will come out in the things that we neglect to do that we should. Garbage in garbage out as somebody once said in terms of our minds and if we're passive about it what goes into our minds then the unhelpful things the wrong things will go in they're around us all the time more than ever aren't they in in our technological society with our social media our screens our phones or whatever good exercise sometimes to just look at the time you spend reading watching listening to Various sorts of things. What's going into your mind? Well, Paul says, guard your mind. Set a barrier around it. Have some border controls onto what goes in. And be proactive. Think about, he says. That means concentrate on the things that we've read about in in verse 8. Because in the end, what we've read about in verse 8, all these things things that are pure, noble, right, lovely, admirable, true. In the end, these are about Jesus himself, aren't they? Look at that last word, praiseworthy. Who is it that's worthy of praise? It's Jesus himself, isn't it? Concentrate on him. He's the truth. Look at his life, his goodness, his love, his purity. Consider what he teaches through the Gospels in the letters, through the inspiration of his spirit, indeed in all the Bible. And look at him too in the lives of others who follow him. Paul offers himself as an example for the Philippians. He'd already done this in in chapter 3, verse 17. He'd said, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, himself and others who work with him, perhaps Timothy, Epaphroditus and others, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. It's not just Paul, it's those who have that same example. Do you have Christian examples that you follow? Who could you choose to imitate? Is there a a more mature Christian perhaps who's faithfully living out a a life of obedience to Christ? Maybe we look for different aspects in different people. Uh, I I think of, just I'll throw a couple of names out, of of Jeannie and her single-mindedness in personal evangelism. That's a real example to me. I think of of Mark in his patience and his kindness. 
Who is it for you? Uh, And are you someone yourself who a younger Christian could profitably imitate? Because we do get imitated. Younger people look up to us, older people. Children look at us and they imitate us, don't they? Set your mind on these things. Set your mind on the Lord and seek out good models to follow, to help you to put these things that we read about in verse 8 into practice. There's that promise with that too, that the God of peace will be with you. So how will we stand firm in the Lord? By agreeing in the Lord, by dealing with, with rifts, with disagreements, by rejoicing in the Lord, by praying to the Lord, by setting our thoughts on the Lord and putting his words into practice. Well, we've got so many reasons to be joyful in the Lord, to sing his praises. We're going to to sing now and then I'll I'll pray for us uh, after that. 10,000 reasons we're going to sing.